Welcome back again to the Stephen Sully study. Hope everyone's enjoying the episodes. And um, if you are, all I ask, ask for you to do is recommend me to friend, family, subscribe, and always, uh, you know, leave a comment and um, definitely, definitely, definitely give me some feedback. So anyway, I've got a, I want to say uh, someone in music, but someone who's also an entrepreneur, Scotty Stacks, who is better known for being in the band called The Manor. Um, anyway, thank you very much for your time, brother. And Thanks thank for you for, me, thank you for coming on board. So where should we start? Um, 2021, I mean, last year was a bit of a roller coaster ride for many people. What was it like being, being in music? How, how did that sort of affect your, uh, your business? Um, it was tough. I think it was tough for all musicians, especially because given the, the way that the music industry exists nowadays and the way that the modern streaming system is, a lot of artists make uh, the majority of their money on live. Um, and so the timing of the pandemic, especially as it came sort of in spring, just before summer, it meant everyone had their shows cancelled for a year. So a lot of people, you know, us us in particular, I would say we probably lost about 80% of our budgeted annual revenue. Right. Look at it as a business. And, and the manner in particular, we were like the most unlucky because we sold out the biggest show of our lives 5,000 people at Brixton Academy and we lost it to the pandemic by three days. I remember you saying actually off air when I spoke to you last week, I mean, Jesus, that must have been a, a little bit of a kick in the nuts. But what I loved about, what I like about your attitude, even before we just start recording, is you speak you speak like how entrepreneurs and like really determined individuals speak, such as the universe and law of attraction and stuff like that. And what I've noticed from many people that I've interviewed on this podcast is when something happens to them, rather than complain, they find a way to pivot and use it for you rather than against you. So I know we were going to probably leave this to the to last bit, but I know because of the pandemic, you've been developing an app, a platform to actually um, make, make revenue a little bit more, let's say, modern and a little bit more um, streamlined for you and your organisation. So if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, we we lost uh, the biggest show of our lives to the pandemic by three days. Brixton Academy sold out 5,000 people, which was gutting, considering uh, the Stereophonics did 80,000 people in Cardiff the weekend before. But it just wasn't meant to be, right? And so then, But then it became clear pretty quickly that we weren't going to do any shows all summer. And like I say, that represented about 80% of our annual rev as a business. So I thought we need to find a way to generate income now beyond the conventional means in the music industry. And so um, I started thinking about an app. <clears throat> Actually, it first came around, I said, you know what? We should have our OnlyFans because we've got a really engaged, loyal fan base. We've got a modest amount of followers, but uh, we've got 40,000 followers, but we sold out 5,000 uh, 5, tickets at Brixton Academy. So if you look at that, we sold a hard ticket to... Uh, about 12.5% of our Instagram following. Right. Which, as a number, is an anomaly. If you look at the kind of people that are doing <coughs> Brixton Academy shows, I, I doubt there's many acts in the country who could do, if any, who could sell out of Brixton with 40k followers. Um, and so it says we've got an engaged, we've got a, a modest-sized, but a really engaged, loyal, buy-in fan base. So I said, we should have our OnlyFans. I think that would be jokes. I think it would just be a funny kind of bit of brand synergy but at the same time if we delivered good content that people I think there was a market for it um so I looked at OnlyFans and I looked at Patreon but I realized as a musician neither of them really had the functionality that I wanted um so what I started to do was design an app for the manner 
which had everything we needed uh, across social media platforms. All the stuff you give away for free on Instagram and Twitter and then everything you get, well, in my opinion, underpaid for on Spotify and YouTube. Um, like, I mean, do you know how many, how much money someone gets paid for a million Spotify streams? I don't know. I don't know. I've had, I've, so I'm fortunately enough. I've, um, I know, uh, Dumi, uh, yeah. from, uh, disturbing London. I actually went to his headquarters to interview him and, uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know tiny and, and people like that. And I remember when, I mean, look, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, he's a really big artist, but I think when they dropped, um, passion fruit i think i remember him telling me something like 1.2 million 1.25 but that was like the second most streamed uh tune going at that present point in time but obviously if you look at other other tunes he said he said that but that is rare steve you know because that doesn't really happen so yeah that that's the only bit of insight i've got to it so as as a base it it, it differs from artist to artist um weighted in favor of the bigger artists but on an average you receive Three thousand pounds for a million streams on a streaming platform, and so if you look at that, you know, as a from at the lower end of the how, spectrum, how do they work that out? Like, where do they get the, the? So basically, Spotify take everything in, um, they subtract their costs, and then they basically have a pool and they split it between everyone else, right? But then it's it's kind of weighted in favour of the people who get the most streams, right? And they pay they package it in as all different types of royalties are into different ways so it's like yeah a third of a third of a penny um and if you look at every up-and-coming artist so take an up-and-coming artist that's got a million streams right your first million streams i mean to get a million streams on spotify you've got to have something about you yeah Do you know what i mean you must have some you're doing something right it's a pretty significant number i mean you think about we look at all <laughs> these millions of streams on spotify and you forget about it but it's like if you actually think about it, it's a big number yeah someone to listen to your song a million times right massive i think you only get three thousand pounds for that who gets their first million streams, which is a fairly significant number, right? And take every startup, take a musician as a startup business, right? And if you quantify the amount of money that they'll spend as a business or invest to get that first million streams on recording costs, mixing and mastering, um, videos, content, PR, plugin, I would say almost every artist is operating heavily in the red as a business by the time they received their first million streams. Whereas if you looked at that as a monthly subscription, that equates to 60 people paying five pound a month for a year. And it's like, how much more achievable and realistic does that sound at a low level than a million people listening to your song? Mm. And so there's the, I came up with this app for the manor because like I say, we've got, everyone's got Instagram followers and you're either trying to, you can't monetize Instagram unless you're selling someone else's product. Getting like endorsements paid, and yeah, stuff. Doing yeah. paid advertising for someone else, or you're trying to move someone to Spotify, or YouTube, where you get notoriously underpaid, right? Or to Shopify to sell merchandise. Because even Instagram tried to put the shopping button on there, right? But no one wanted to see it on artist profiles because they're not on that. If you're on ASOS Instagram, you don't mind having a shopping button, but people are sort of very particular Mm-hmm. about how they consume content and no one wanted to get sold merchandise on an artist profile not on instagram yeah and so <clears throat> it's difficult to monetize so i set out about designing an app for the manor um and then i was introduced to a guy called um john forbes who i knew through a mutual friend and all i knew is that him and his brother had some sort of um investment fund called the forbes family group where they 
invest into young entrepreneurs. They actually, John actually approached me to talk about another business I have called Tiger Bites, which is a street food company. Um, and then in the meeting about Tiger Bites, I explained him the concept of that. And I said, like, what's your background? And then he said, oh, yeah, I've got uh, 17 years experience in tech. And my older brother is one of three UK-based CEOs who's achieved over a billion in software exit value. And so I said, all right, well, fuck the restaurant. I've got an app. <laughs> and so since then, we've now been working together. It's called Bando. Um, we've been working on it for the best part of nine months now. We're about eight weeks away from launch. And, yeah, we're going to completely revolutionise the music industry. Did you secure funding for it? Um, no. So it's been funded in-house at the moment um, by ourselves and by the Forbes family group. Um, we will need to secure... Um, we're going to do a seed round at some point. However, we've decided to soft launch first with uh, a number of kind of <clears throat> what we call like <clears throat> high engagement mutant artists. Right. So acts like the Manor and similar who kind of have cult fan bases, engaged law followings, because we know that if we go to VCs with an idea and a concept, yeah, they might take a punt on it, but they're going to have our pants down on equity, right? Whereas if we launch on a low scale, prove the concept, and we go to them with uh, an operational, profitable business or a business that's turning over money and a, a model that works, then all of a sudden that's a completely different conversation when it comes to equity, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've said to you before, I've only um, interviewed three, two people in, in music. Uh, Jevon, good friend of mine, yeah. and also a guy called Marcella uh, Spooks. And the 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 common theme i've got from all three of you is when you rap or when you sing there's one kind of like image of you and it can be portrayed and i say this in the most respectful way like very passionate kind of aggressive sometimes but then when you guys start speaking about business i mean jevon's like getting involved with cryptocurrency nfts yeah. Marcello's like getting involved with acting and also with um, different concepts um, and also like restaurants and things like that. And then obviously you, you've got like kind of your mind on a, a vision for the future and, and, and fingers in different pies. You're all very, very articulate and you're all very, very kind of kind of know where you want to, where you want to get to. And one thing I've, I've learned from even being like around someone like Dumi, um, who's not a, a music artist, but very, very much pioneered, you know, the whole Disturbing London, etc. A lot of the artists, and correct me if I'm wrong, use like the, the music as kind of building your profile. And obviously you can make money out of it, but then you take that that profile and you start putting it into other things. So is that the aim? Is it is it carry on with the manner or carry on with music and then go into other things? Or what? what's the kind of game plan there? Um, I see it kind of all running in congruence. Okay. Like especially for myself, I'm very much like, um, I'm passionate about business. I've always been passionate about business. I was always the kid in school, like buying Malwams and it's not like buying and selling them or going to Wembley Market and getting Nike trainers and whatever stuff and selling them in school and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? So I very much, I, music was always kind of a passion at the start. Like the way the manor started was we used to just spit bars on the phone after school. And then our main thing was house parties. Like we used to throw the best house parties and then, Whilst we were throwing house parties, we used to like make little rap songs and put them on Facebook. And then most of them were just spitting bars about our mates and about Beckenham and going out to Raskas and the high street or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and then because of that, <clears throat> we started to get like, everyone used to make us get up at the house parties and like <clears throat> put the tunes on and sing along. And then again, that kind of just grew simultaneously to the point that we then took our 
parties into our local, into the Beckenham. And then all of a sudden we were roadblocking the Beckenham every every couple of months and doing like four or 500 people in there. Um, and then, but the thing is, we never really got any like industry support. We never really got much radio. And still, and that's kind of been a theme to this day. We very much built inside out and it's been very organic. Um, I think there's a few different reasons for that. Like, um, we, we're not like anything else that's out there. I think that's why we went on the tour, on tour with Mike Skinner, because all our music sonically quite different. We speak to the same people. And I was going to say, I mean, like when you, when you hear like the streets and stuff, you know, it's the streets. Yeah. When I listen to you, you, I mean, I was listening to some of your tunes on the, on the way in this morning and um, you, you get, you get this, like you get this common thread that even though some of the tunes are different, you get to feel <laughs> the, the kind of vibe that the man is all about. 100%. And it's not, it's not, it's not typical, you know, not typical stuff that you listen to. You've, you kind of blaze your own trail in that respect. Yeah, 100%. And just in terms of, like, we can all spit bars, but the the conundrum that's always faced us industry-wise is on the dance playlists, no one wants to really hear rap at the minute because dance, people want to party. But then on the rap playlist, it's quite heavy. So people don't really want to hear dance music. And so we never really, from from start to finish, like, we've had a bit, we get a bit of support here and there. And, like, we don't, don't complain about it because it is what it is, but we just don't really sit. But then that's, that's why we have the organic cult following that we do because we built it from the ground up, brick by brick. Um, but so, yeah, even at the start, we never really had much acknowledgement from the industry, <clears throat> but we got introduced to a guy um, called Craig D'Souza, our primary talent. He was like Stormzy, Jay Huss. He's like one of the most successful agents in the country. And we had a yep. meeting with him. And that's the one thing we've always done is sold tickets. Right, which is notoriously hard for up and coming artists to do because you get a lot of artists who have millions of streams, millions of YouTube views, put them on a show and they can't sell out a few hundred people. So we went for a meeting with Craig and he said, oh, I've heard you like get a lot of people down at your shows. Because we were like at Beckenham out in Kent and it's hard enough to get people to cross the river, let alone come come to a BR postcard. People see something mm. that ain't SE or SW. And, and even then this was before the days of Stormzy and Crepton Conan and everyone started talking about South London. So like no one was interested. And so, um, yeah, we met Craig and he said, oh, look, I heard you lot can do shows. I've seen some of the videos. It looks mad. We said, yeah, we can do four or 500 tickets. No problem. And he said, all right, let's, uh, I'll book you a show at the O2 Academy, isn't it? And, um, and there's two rooms there. There's uh, a small room that's like 350 and a big room that's about 1,000. He said, let's put the small room on sale first. And if it goes well, we can always upgrade to the big room. So put the small room on sale. Um, 10 minutes after it went on sale on the day, all our mates were ringing us up saying, mate, what's going on? Like, the link's not working, the link's not working. Rand Craig said, the link's not working. He said, oh, mate, sold out. We sold out in 10 minutes. So he was like, all right, cool, you lot got something about you. Um, upgraded it to... How, the- how did that feel? <clears throat> Surreal. Surreal. Surreal, but, like, expected without being arrogant. Like, yeah. we knew, we knew, we knew we could do it. And, like, listen, we were selling out 500 people in the Beckenham. I think as soon as I saw someone saw O2 Academy... All we, all of our friends and family, mobilized. Do you know what I'm saying? I think like they were proud of us, people, and I think that's kind of like where we're quite honest and self-deprecating as an act. Like we're not talking about pop champagne and knock you out. We're talking about you're 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 you're, you're raw, and there's like there's there's no there's no filter on it. And yeah. obviously, I think as you said, like your core fan base are going to resonate with that because it's real. 
It really is real. It's not like someone's trying to do a textbook kind of band and this is the profile you need to be and we're going to make you look like this. This is just us, you know. You, 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 and even it, you just feel it coming through your music, like the way you are on social media, the way you come across in your music. I mean, it's just genuine and real. And I think some people are not going to really resonate with it, but the people that do are absolutely going to stick to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like with the, the comparison with the streets with Mike Skinner, I feel like the reason people make that comparison is because we speak to the same people. <clears throat> and since then, I don't think those people have really been spoken to in the same way since the streets, you know, like <clears throat> urban music and rap and grime and drill, it's blown up massively because it's kind of been accepted by the wider market in England and by kind of like these middle England suburban kids. But having it right, as much as they will want to wear the clothes and speak the slang and this, that and the other, they're not really speaking, these people aren't really speaking about their lives. Mm. <clears throat> Whereas people look at us, I feel like a lot of our fans and kids and our mates and like people around us look at us and think, ah, oh, if I was a rapper, I'd be like them. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? And so I feel like people want us to win or like the people around us. And so, yeah, then we upgraded the O2 Islington to the big room, sold that out in a day. And since then, that's just been a running theme. We've sold out every show we've done from, we went to Coco, we went to the uh, Brixton Electric, the Forum Kentish Town, the Roundhouse, most recently Brixton Academy, and we sold out every single show. Amazing. So if you were to like <laughs> define or break down or even um, describe the manner in a few words, how would you describe <clears throat> the group? Um, it's very London. It's very London. It's very honest. We're all kind of... <clears throat> We are like the typical, like modern suburban group of mates. Like you kind of got, even like on the surface, you've got a black geezer, a little ginger fella and an Asian boy. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Do you know what I'm saying? I kind of like, Dan is like Cockney through and through. His, <clears throat> his, his family are all sort of proper born under the bow bells. You've got John, who's kind of like second generation in his country. You've got Jamaican parents with strong values. My parents are from Goa. We've all, <clears throat> and I feel like we're all from that. Again, even where we live, like in like around Beckham and Bromley, it's even just the fact that that's kind of that little tipping point where <clears throat> the southeast London meets like the the more inner part of the suburbia of Kent. Yeah, you know what I mean. And there's I feel like there's a real kind of beautiful like multicultural sort of multi class mix out there. Is a most group of friends from where from around kind of like Beckham and Bromley. You've kind of got a few people who might have been brought up on a council estate in Penge. Or you might have a couple of people that were born into a lot of money yeah. in Chiselhurst, but culturally are all very similar because well, of the way we've grown up. I've got fr friends of mine who live, like, live in uh, Wimbledon, Morden, those kind of areas, and I wouldn't call them wouldn't call them posh, but you know, I would say they speak a lot, a lot better than I do. Very uh, quite clear, and I think some of them went to you know private school, etc. And uh, they always just say like. Bromley and Essex, they kind of feel like the same people. And the one thing they always say is you're very, they're always very confident, rightly or wrongly, yeah. whether they're doing something not so right or they're doing something, doing, doing something right. They're always very, very confident in their, in, in their ability and what they, what they're, what they're going to achieve. And I, I remember, I remember sitting back and thinking, really? Cause I was a bit immune to it. I was like looking, I, I was thinking, really? And now like, I don't really go out so much in Beckenham no more. My friend has got a restaurant down there and every so often I go to Branded. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you started, when you were talking just then, it just reminded me of that conversation <clears throat> I had with him and thinking, yeah, like I can see that. I can see that people look at place like Bromley, which is in, in between like 
very affluent. Then you've got like the council council house kind of, you know, uh, uh, individuals or people, and they all kind of come into one, this melting pot. And you have got that weird, diverse group, but they're all very, very confident. It's, mm. You know, it's, it's a very interesting place to be. Definitely. And I feel like, especially London's quite like that anyway. Mm. Right? Like even I, I was driving through uh, Maida Vale the other day and Maida Vale is the one, Maida Vale is always like the, for me the, the clearest example of it because that's where you've got like ridiculous houses on one side that literally look out their window yeah, and onto a, council estates. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or like even like, <clears throat> like, like where the Mozart estate is, like in that kind of bit of West Kensington and stuff like that in like elaborate Grove and that bit of West London. And, um, but I feel like the more you get in, everyone's a little bit more on top of each other and it's a little bit more dense and it doesn't have the kind of community feel mm. that it does around where we live. And I feel like where we're in South London and we're a little bit further away from that super busy hustle and bustle of central. A bit more space in there. <clears throat> There's yeah. a little bit more space. So everyone's less on top of each other. So I feel like we kind of integrate yeah. a little bit better. Yeah. And so that's why you will have a group of mates with... 10, 15 different people. Or you could be at a house party and everyone's in a five mile radius and everyone's been brought up completely different. But sometimes you might not even realise who's come from Chiselhurst and who's come from Penge and who's come from whatever because everyone's just like this big yeah. eclectic mix of South London. Yeah. That's why it's beautiful, do you know what I'm saying? And yeah. I feel like <clears throat> that's why... But then, although I would say we're very South London and very London-centric, I feel like <coughs> what we talk about does translate across the country and it is kind of just... That middle middle suburban England, do you know what I mean? We're not kind of like. <clears throat> sometimes people call us like, "Are oh, you sort of like the real like corrupt FM's a parody, and you like like the real life version of that?" And I don't necessarily think that. I don't like. We're not. I, I love corrupt FM, but it's clear what they're doing with their brand. Whereas we're not. We're not Chav UK. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Just because we speak a certain way, we might drop a t our t's and use a bit of slang. Do you know what I'm saying? Like mo a lot of the people around when we grew up, it's a nice area. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? We're not yeah. like we're not <clears throat> we're not out of an episode of Shameless. Do you know what I'm saying? So we're not we're not like these kind of token parody council estate kids. We're just a little bit of everything all mixed into one. You know. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> what makes like far as rapping, singing, you know, being music, being being in music, um, what makes like a good rapper or a good good singer? Because the reason why I ask you this question is because I know when we were chatting and um, you sent me a message and uh, in there, I noticed that you, you mentioned about doing South for two years. Yeah. And I'm going to digress a little bit here, but I'll, I've just got back from Devon. And on the way back from Devon, my mother-in-law said to me, oh, what does, uh, I wonder what Mason's going to be when he's older. Because what, like, me and, we don't butt heads, me and my mother-in-law, but I'm very <laughs> driven. I'm very no you don't take part you win like that's my mentality yeah. and she's like no it's all about taking part I said no that's the wrong advice to give my son yeah. it's not about taking part it's about fucking winning there's no point of coming second because if you're <clears throat> just okay with doing that you're setting yourself up just to take part in anything you do Have and not win first. it's about winning and that's my mentality um <clears throat> so anyway when he goes to bed at night I always say the last thing to him which is dream of success and stuff like that Anyway, she was like, well, what do you think he's going to be or what do you want him to be? And I said, well, if I could, if I could wish for anything, it would either be an athlete, um, like a footballer, like a Formula One driver, even a boxer, because I love boxing, or being a business person. But if he was turning around to me, if he could go into the future and then come back as a kid, and he was asking me the question, what, what is one of the f first fundamental skills for me to learn? I would always say the same thing, 
learned sales. And she said, oh, I've got an image of a car salesperson. I said, no, you've got the wrong image. It, sales is all about effective communication. No matter what you do in life, whether you're a mother, father, someone in music, someone in business, someone who's an athlete, it's all about selling. You've got to sell yourself, sell your products, sell your service. If you don't know how to do that, you could have the best product in the world, but no one's <coughs> going to know about it. Or they might know about it, but they won't feel compelled. It's a bit like that band or the music <coughs> groups you were saying. People can stream their music, but the moment they need to sell a ticket, they don't feel compelled to go and see it. And obviously you, you clearly, you guys and you as an individual clearly have got that. So sales, how, how much, how much foundations or how much sort of mindset or characteristics did it give you for, for now going into business and also in, in your music? Just like everything really, just because it's like every exchange you have in life is a sales pitch isn't it like whether you're speaking to every everyone you introduce yourself to you're always trying to sell yourself as a person like when you meet a bird anything you're doing there's always that kind of one-on-one <clears throat> -on -one exchange where whether it's conscious or subconscious you're trying to sell someone something with every conversation that you have yeah Do you know what i mean and even whether it's and like you say whether it's just fundamentally whether you're actually trying to convince them something or whether you're trying to encourage them to take action or whether it's simply simply trying to get your point across <clears throat> and one thing you said there i think uh, is key effective communication and it's like what's the point in talking if someone if the person you're speaking to doesn't understand mm. you know and i feel like a lot of people have got so much to say but then they don't know how to adapt it to the person that they're speaking to and so i feel like one thing that sales taught me is to to, to be understood, you have to listen first. And then once you understand the person you're speaking to, yeah. you can then identify the best way to communicate with them for them to listen. <clears throat> yeah, because at the end of the day, it's like someone says, I remember the other day, and obviously it's super ignorant. I remember once someone said to me, uh, I was talking to this girl and she was a bit of a div. But she said, oh, if I go to a foreign country and they don't speak English, that's their problem, isn't it? And I'm thinking, it's absolutely not, is it? Yeah, that's a bit shallow, isn't it? It's, just, it's ridiculous, but I feel like that's just a lot of people's kind of mentality. And I think a lot of people who kind of like get on their high horse and people, intelligent people as well, who've got a lot to say, who feel like it's the person they're speaking to's responsibility to understand them. And it's like, well, no, because then you might as well save, if they don't understand you, you might as well save your breath. Yeah. <clears throat> if you're going to bother speaking... You need to speak to them in a way that they understand you. So I feel like that effective communication. <clears throat> and then just again, in the mindset, I remember being around you and the other guys who you was around and seeing, I feel like that was the first time I was around really driven, <clears throat> successful people. And especially people that who hadn't been born into money. And I think <clears throat> it's quite clear now through my kind of endeavours in life and my journey in the business world, it's quite interesting the difference in the clear difference in mentality between people who have been born into money and people who are self-made successful. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. at the same time, but then there's this stuff to be learned from both sides. Yeah. Because I feel like sometimes now recently I've kind of moved out to Keston and like the guy, uh, the people I live around there of, of uh, my friend, he was kind of, been born into a fairly privileged life and <clears throat> as I've gone through music I've met a lot of people who've been born into quite privileged lives and one thing um <clears throat> one thing I've definitely learned from them is that although they're all money motivated because it's the way they were born they don't put it on a pedestal 
and they don't show it like uh, they don't show it too much respect. If you know what I mean, because yeah. it's like it's it's almost it's more of a, it's more of a non-issue to them. It's they're conditioned. <clears throat> to, they've they've had it. They've been around it for so long that it's part and parcel of their life now. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's like we don't get excited to have hot water in the morning. Yeah. Whereas someone who lives in a less developed country would. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so although we still enjoy a hot shower and they still enjoy... We just expect it though, you know? Exactly, exactly. And it's the same thing with them. And so I've quite learned, I've learned a lot from them in that they're not, they're shrewd, but they're not stingy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I think there's definitely a difference between being frugal and being stingy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's almost like it, it can work in two ways. I mean, I've seen like literally rich kids. Uh, but I would say more from up being up here. So my former business partner uh, moved into Mayfair and over the years he, you know, developed a lot of you know, quite good friends and I, they end up becoming my friends and some of them end up becoming our clients of ours. And um, some of them were very shrewd, very determined young people. They were p- predominantly men, but then some of them were, <clears throat> their family was so wealthy they just went off the rails, drinking, drugs, and they had no purpose in life. And and literally, they were blowing money like it was going out of fashion. But then the other ones, like you said, they become very, very, they're very familiar with money and they just expect it into their life. So where it's not such a big deal for them, it almost was like they gravitated towards it quicker because it was just expected. <clears throat> they were in harmony with that vibe or that 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 uh, that system of making money, and it and it seemed to come towards them, and many many doors opened up. I mean, what one guy I remember he closed his massive deal, and I used to think to myself, I mean, he's one of the richest families in Mexico. I mean, they literally own the press, the media, they own the equivalent to Boots over there, and he signed this deal, and I'm like, how the hell did you pull that off within a matter of a few months? And the guy was like 22, 23 years of age. Wow. And I was thinking that must be because you've been in and around money all your life and you're actually quite shrewd yourself. Uh, he wasn't one of these kids that had just run, <clears throat> go off the rails. He was, he was quite determined. So it can work in both ways. Um, but yeah, going back to the point, like <clears throat> for me, I think sales has been a blessing for me. Um, I didn't come from money. It didn't come from a poor background, but I come from a typical, you know, middle class my mum and dad, you know, there was times when they struggled for a bit of money. Um, as you all probably know, most divorces end because of money situations. And I think that was part of, part of the reason why that my mum and dad split up. And I remember growing up, my dad always used to say to me, money is important. And if you can have the better things in life, go and do it. He used to instill that into me, but there was no system. And when I found sales and I got into it, I was like, this is my calling. This is the promised land. When they talk about America being land of opportunity, sales is the land of opportunity. Because again, if you're going to go into business, music, you've got to sell yourself. And it's not about the words and it's not always how you say it. It's the vibe that you give off. Is this person determined? I mean, we spoke about earlier about boxing and typically when I, when I, when I was, uh, I had to do a rendition, like an, um, like a not a rehearsal but like I had to do uh, I had to qualify for the Queensbury League and they put you into sparring to see which level you're at and I remember getting into the ring and there was all these strangers around me like and uh, they went right Sully you get in with this guy and as the guy got in I already knew it was going to be good before he even threw a shot at me because of the aura and that was that's also selling yourself like I've got this presence 
So yeah, I just wanted to voice that because um, I like speaking to people who've been in sales because I feel like there's the rapport there, and I feel now that we're a bit older and looking back, the the mindset's giving you the characteristics, the fundamentals, the foundations. It must it must have served you quite immensely. Hundred percent, and it's just that idea of kind of congruence and that that what is like the epitome of the picture of a successful person and what does their life look like 360 in every area and that's why I kind of make that I digressed a little bit but I made that comparison from people who are like self-made to people who have come from money but are doing well and when you look at like guys like us who maybe not been born like, like I said I wasn't born poor either my mum and dad didn't come from a lot but they came here and they worked hard so we've always been <coughs> okay do you know what I mean? Like, not really struggled. They're not going on mad fancy. Not a couple of nice holidays a year. My dad drives an okay motor. I live in a townhouse in Sydney. Like, we're, we're doing cool. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <clears throat> but then, so it's like a lot of the stuff that we kind of look at successful people and try and mimic and mirror. And a lot of these kind of people who are born into that life do it as second nature. And so, one thing about sales kind of taught me <clears throat> is that. It's not just about, like, mindset comes from, like, inside and out. <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? So it's like it's, you can read and read and read and teach yourself as much knowledge, but then it's also your actions and the action that you take and the sacrifices that you make to better yourself, which then create that, it would and then inflate your self-opinion, which would then flow out of your aura. And I mm. feel like a lot of that, <clears throat> especially in sales, because sales is such a, a psychological battle and an emotional roller coaster, and it makes you resilient. Do you know what I'm saying? And so you need to do as much as you can away from sales to make sure you've got the best kind of opinion of yourself, so that when you're putting yourself across, it comes across to other people. Yeah. So I feel like all everything I know now, or like my whole journey <clears throat> into kind of personal and self development and mindset, all started with that foundation of sales. Yeah. Makes you resilient as well because I mean in music trying to get your I remember reading that you know you got you got signed in two thousand and fifteen uh, it f- cut you 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 got dropped in two thousand eighteen and then re-signed straight away basically in two thousand nineteen and if you think about it that's like sales as well because you get you get the yes you think you're flying then you get dropped which is your no. And most people at that point will crumble. They'll be like, oh, I can't do it. You know, maybe it's not for us. Maybe I should go and pursue another career. And it's only the resilient sales people that realize that every no is closer to a yes. And just because they said no to you doesn't mean the whole market or the whole world is saying no to you. It's just that one individual or that one entity. And then you go on, reformulize your pitch, pivot a little bit. And before you know it, another door opens. And I think that is like a metaphor analogy in life almost, you know, you've got to keep on going. You're going to get setbacks after setbacks, but if you can keep on going as cheesy and as cliche as it sounds, you're going to become a success eventually. hundred percent. And it's just, um, it's just law of averages and getting used to that. Sales is just the volume. You, you increase your volume of rejection and you increase your volume of failure. And so you get, you get resilient to that. And I remember it's like Will Smith. I remember seeing Will Smith speak, and uh, he said, "If you want to be successful, get comfortable with failure, because successful people are the ones that fail the most. Absolutely, because they're the ones that are okay with failing the most. And if the more yeses you want to get, you're gonna to have to go through more nos. And so, if you can get comfortable 
with a million no's, then you're going to have more yeses. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like that filters through to every kind of walk of life. And if you, and I know it's cliche and they say, oh, there's like, there's no such thing as a loss and you win or you learn. And <clears throat> as much as, as much as I'm very mindful with my language <clears throat> and like, you know, I'm, I've, I've read all the books and I try and always speak in the positive. But then at the same time now, I, like I'm not scared of the word failure anymore. I'm not scared of the word loss anymore. Because as, as much as I try and speak into speak in the positive tense and try and manifest positive stuff, I'm okay with those sort of words because I understand that winning and losing is part of life. Yeah, you know I, I feel I feel I feel like it's a bit of a paradox because um, <clears throat> I do like the, the 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 thing. I think it was Conor McGregor's coach that made the book, which was uh, win or like feedback or something like that, and it's basically taking your loss and converting it into into a positive. And I and I fully respect that and I fully appreciate that. But then sometimes you need to say things how they are. If it's a loss, it's a fucking loss. Like it's a loss and deal with it. Um, sometimes I feel, feel that if you sugarcoat everything, then you're not, it's like, I know I'm using a really horrendous scenario here, but let's just say I've got, I don't know, like a fucking deadly <laughs> illness, like cancer or something. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and go, oh, I've got a little fucking bump, you know, or something like that. Yeah, I've got, yeah. I've got something serious and I've got to deal with it. There's no good, there's no good sugarcoating it. So, yeah, I just think it's the, the nature of the beast of salespeople when something happens to them, um, you know, you, you, you do reframe it slightly, make it a, an easier thing to deal with and then move, moving on. So anyway, I want to ask you this, right? So in sales, what a lot of people get nervous about is obviously doing the presentation in front of other people. And again, me thinking about your what you do, you as a rapper is a bit like a salesperson, like... Was there a moment where, like you could probably rap, but was you a little bit nervous trying to do it in front of a camera or on a mic or something? Like, how did you get over that barrier? And also, how did you learn to to rap? Because I mean, is it something that came to you naturally, or something you had to work on? Um, I guess, in terms of learning to rap and how to rap, <clears throat> it's just uh, a bit. Of, it's a bit of both. Like, I'm not like I don't play instruments. I used to play a bit of saxophone in school and I understand music, but I'm not kind of, I'm not a classically trained musician by any means. I'm not Justin Bieber. I'm not someone who will sit there and <clears throat> I don't, <clears throat> I'm not Jay-Z. I can't, I'm not a very good freestyler. I don't write off the top of my head. I'm kind of, I've sat down and <clears throat> I guess it was born from a passion for music first and foremost, and just from a love for music, which made me want to start making music. And then as you start writing <clears throat> and then you start doing it, and then you listen to it back and then you compare it to what you're listening to and then you learn kind of little nuances and how to how to develop it. And so I guess there's, um, <clears throat> I would say I'm more, it's strange because I was always like more of a scientist than an artist when I was young, like going through school. Like I wasn't very, I've always loved music, but I wasn't a very artsy person. I was maths. Okay. So I mean, <clears throat> like my old man was in the city, he worked in metals my plan was always to go into metals and be a metals trader. I just wanted to work on the, on the London Metals Exchange and <clears throat> that's what I wanted to do. Turns out my life took me on a different journey. Um, but I've always had a kind of, I've always seen myself as very left side of the brain rather than right, which I find it was curious that I've now ended up in a creative industry, albeit I've got business interests running simultaneously with that. Um, but then I'm born on a borderline of two star signs, so I've kind of got a bit of both in that as well, do you know what I mean? But, Would um, you say you're quite <clears throat> spiritual? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But I'm I'm materialistic as hell at the same time. 
Do you know what I mean? Um, but I feel like this, the world we live in is the world we live in. And of course. I think you've got to have a bit of both. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> really. Definitely. Well, you don't have to, but I feel like that's balance. Yeah. You know yeah like, I, think, I think there's been a bit of a stigma maybe over a couple of years. And I think it's now converting back round that, oh, it should be about materialistic things and it should all be about the greater good and all this kind of stuff. And I get all that. And I, I, fully, I fully accept that. But I think like materialistic things make you realise that you're doing something right. You know, and you get to enjoy for a moment um, something like it's like a medal. It's like it's like you got whether that's car, watch, new house. I think it's important to have these milestones, knowing that they're not the be all and end all of success. I mean, I know people that drive around in Ferraris, got a very nice watch, but live in a dump. You know, and I think their principles financially are slightly off. Who am I to say? You know, everyone's got different goals, but personally, like. Maybe maybe align certain other things before you get that sort of stuff. You can look rich, but true wealth is is beyond that, 100%. you know. And I know living in Keston, I live right near you. That the people around now, you know, the Rio Ferdinands who live in the area, the big developers live in the area. My friend's got the largest private care homes, Aussie. You know, these people are very wealthy, and they 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 speak and they they align their finances in a certain way, like like you cannot believe in them. Yeah, I just wanted to wanted to hit hit home that point, and I think the spiritual side of things as well is also very very important because if you don't have that that other box ticked, I feel feel like you become a bit empty, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and I think, but I feel like it's just wealth is inside and out. Yeah, Do you know what I'm saying, and this is the thing, and I feel like there's a lot of this kind of the way that the divide's created in society, and there's this kind of like idea that haves and have nots and whatever, and it's just, I mean, the problem is the disparity. The problem is not being rich because I feel like we're all meant to be rich. That's why we're here. Why, why would we not all want to experience the best and most beautiful things that engineering and modern technology in this world has to offer? Like, exactly. there's, like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Like, why would you not want to drive an amazing car, wear the nicest fabrics, travel the world, eat the best food? Like, do you know what I'm yeah. saying? And, there's, and now I feel like there's this kind of, because of the disparity, there's now this kind of like some people will kind of look down their nose on one side and some people will look at the other. And <clears throat> But again... I feel like now, like you say, it's kind of going hand in hand and there is definitely a, um, a rise in spirituality. Um, but in terms of how we kind of view it, it's like, I think it's just about finding the balance about, it's what what do you want? Do you know what I mean? Like what what is, what is riches to you? Like you say, you know some people who drive Ferraris and have a nice kettle but live in a dump, whereas I know sometimes I'll drive down the nice roads in Chiselers for a bit of motivation and I, or I'll drive through Keston Park mm-hmm. and I absolutely love it when you see a six million pound house that's got a beat down Volvo estate yeah. on the driveway. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, um, my running route behind my house goes into <clears throat> Keston Park and I basically loop all the way around there and then I go across the road and go into Farnborough Park and I go, I sort of zigzag through there and I purely do it, one, to get fit uh unwind like in a weird way my mind it sort of like opens up a bit but then also to get motivation i love going around them places but every so often you will come across a house and it's and it's not a one-off it's not that old maybe someone's there the car's always there and it's a beat-up car in a very very uh you know definitely a wealthy 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 house and um i think to myself sometimes why haven't they got a nicer car and sometimes it's just not that important to them, you know. But for me, wealth is about doing what you want, uh, when you want, however you want to do it, you know, however sort of 
way of doing it, whether it's getting a private jet somewhere or doing this or doing that. Or um, I remember Rob Moore said something to me. He said something along the lines of uh, when you when you make more, you can give more away. And I think that really is the definition, <clears throat> so financially. Well, not even financially. I mean, if you're educated or, or in other aspects, but I think that is the true wealth. If, you, if you've got more or something, you're able to give it away to a lot more people to help them and serve them. And I think that is a definition of being wealthy. Absolutely. I, I listened to a podcast recently, um, Matthew McConaughey, uh, and it was sick because he talked about the concept of uh, selfishness and selflessness. And he said, what's the point in being selfless if, you've got, if you, there's not much of yourself to give? And he said, you know, there's a stigma around being selfish, but <coughs> to be selfless to its fullest extent, you first need to work on yourself and put yourself in a position that allows you to do so. So first and foremost, be selfish. Yeah. Do you know I mean, be selfish, work on yourself, be the best you can be. And it's like you say, when you talk about giving away, philanthropy goes beyond finances it could be in knowledge it could be in love it could be in uh, it could be in kind of experience <clears throat> wisdom and, and, and many many yeah. many different ways there's many different ways to being selfless but to do that you need to put yourself in a position that allows you to do so and so I feel like I'm very much kind of I'm very much trying to find <clears throat> that sort of balance myself it's like even moving to Keston I always thought I would go like I grew up in Sydney and I've lived around there my whole life but sort of Sydney Beckham and Bromley and then I always saw myself as going further in. Do you know what I mean? Like when I was looking at houses before I moved to Keston, I was looking at, I was obsessed with living in like Chelsea. I was trying to live in Chelsea. So I was looking at Chelsea Bridge Wharf. I was looking at... Battersea. Yeah, I looked at Beaufort Street just because it was Beaufort Street. And I thought, yeah, yeah that's just what I fucking want that on my address. Do you know what I mean? Because when you go somewhere and someone asks you your address and you put Beaufort Street, they'll listen to you. Do you yeah. know what I mean? <clears throat> but then I got offered, it was just, again, came out of a really... Um, unusual circumstances in the first lockdown that this opportunity came for me to go live in Keston on a property that's got like <clears throat> uh, 15 acres of land around swimming pool. Like it's a beautiful place. And I know it's, it's not in walking distance of a station, but I drive everywhere anyway. But <clears throat> I, I never really thought that that was something that I wanted yet. But it was the first lockdown. So I thought oh, I'll go there for a little while temporarily. And now I can't imagine being anywhere else because yeah. it's like, <clears throat> as much as I love coming up here and I love the hustle and bustle of the city I can come in and get that whenever I want however when I go home I've got space and tranquility and I feel like looking out of my window and seeing floods of green it does so much for my for my mental health you know what it's so weird because I too I, I, I there might have been a bit of envy I was envious a little bit of my business partner because where he was a bit more bachelor-esque <coughs> now we we're business partners but I had a missus and I was I was in my mid-twenties and he had moved uptown and I was like <clears throat> working up here and then seeing like a bit of a lifestyle and I'm thinking, man, I, I should be doing this. Yeah. Like, I think I was getting that FOMO, like missing out. And I thought, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to sell my house and we're going we're gonna to move uptown or move closer to town. And we started looking at Wimbledon and all these areas, then start further in like Battersea. <clears throat> and I realised I was going from like, quite a nice big house to like same amount of money and it was getting this house was getting smaller and then I think I was having a conversation with now my wife and uh, it was like but you're going to get less for your money and you're never going to have a break because you're going to be in the thick of it all the time and when I go like my in-laws live in Devon so every so often I go down there and I was there recently and I put something up on my Instagram and literally as you open up the window of their house 
you're looking at green fields like you can't really see any other building anywhere else it's very very quiet community place place called Connellton. you could literally walk it in 10 minutes whole entire the little village you're at you're in and out of it very very quickly and i and occasionally have a few people go oh man green green i'm like what and that these people live in in london they don't see mm. anything else apart from trains buses taxes pollution people and it's that does affect your your mind. And we said off air, like you and the manor have uh, done a few podcasts, um, like six episodes, and you spoke about me- mental health and stuff like that. And I think actually living in cities can factor in towards, you know, a bleak outlook sometimes on life and you feel congested, you know, and it, and it can stress you out and cause anxiety. 100%, like 100%. I just, and it's something I never really, I never realised until I actually got there. <clears throat> but I, I guess even... I suppose South London is actually quite green. It is, yeah. In South East London, especially even where I grew up in like Sydney and Crystal Palace. When you ju- if you look at like I was in um North London the other day and it's like everything's a bit the pavements are smaller, <clears throat> there's less trees, less parks, little things like that. And just now <clears throat> like just waking up and looking out the window and seeing green and there's just something about and I don't know if it just sounds a bit hippieish, but just something about walking around trees and greenery and seeing lakes and hearing birds and little things like that. It makes, yeah. it makes such a difference, but you only, <clears throat> I guess I've always enjoyed it, but I've never immersed myself in it. And since I've been there for almost a year now, I can really notice a change in my vibration as a person. <clears throat> like I was with, uh, I was seeing a girl at the start of this year who lived in Battersea Reach. And it was sick. And I thought, <clears throat> right, I've got the best of both now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I go up to hers for a few days a week and I'm back to the reach. I'm in the thick of it. There's 150 things on Deliveroo. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's got everything I want. And then when I'm sick... Uber, of, a click of a button. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? And when I'm sick of that, I go back back, back down to, to Keston and it's all good. But then <clears throat> the more I kind of went back and forth and the more we kind of discussed, uh, if this goes anywhere, where are we going to go? The idea of moving there full time just didn't sit with me <clears throat> and as much as it was nice to go up there for a couple of days I really felt more balanced and centred when I was back around that wide mm. open space and especially even just because of where I live in Keston <clears throat> like I say there's a lot of land around me so I've got no neighbours so just I don't know man it's just like the f- and I grew, I grew up in a townhouse and I've always kind of lived and even when I lived in uh, uh, Shortlands I lived in a, a nice detached house, but there was still, I was on a road with houses either side. Whereas right now I kind of look out my door and I don't see any neighbours. And it's just, it's hard to explain without living in it. But just that feeling of external space creates a feeling of internal space at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You know totally resonate with that. I mean, I've, I'm so like skipping outside and I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate here because again, like you were using the example about using... Um, hot water you know we expect to have hot water when i go home at night if i want to have a bath or shower i expect there to be hot water and with with having a garden it's like almost like yeah this is this is completely normal but during lockdown there were people in in maybe council houses one bedroom flat one one bedroom flats in the center of london and they couldn't leave and they got maybe three or four kids so it's chaotic you know they might not be on a lot of money it might be hot you know, and, and it really was playing on people's emotions, their mental health, uh, you know, men, men, the, the, the mental health side of things. And it was really causing problems. So, yeah, like 
you know, count my lucky stars. I, you know, I had that during lockdown, and I can only imagine the same for you with with Keston. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and it just really, I don't know, man. I think it was really, although it was kind of detrimental to me in terms of my music career <clears throat> on the face of it, but it allowed me time to because I've got a few different business interests and I've always juggled plates. But there was one which. Uh, stayed open and flourished through the pandemic and it flourished and we did record numbers because everything else slowed down and I was allowed to dedicate myself to something 100%. Um, <clears throat> even little things like, okay, it sounds super hippie-ish, but it, I, f- I like, started to appreciate the beauty of nature. <clears throat> like I remember even when I went to um, Crystal Palace Park and I went for a walk around and because I've been going for like nice walks in Keston and around Keston Ponds and everywhere like that. And then um, I thought, you know what? I just fancied going back to Crystal Palace Park because I hadn't really been. That's something I've never really done. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you know what I mean? I live such a fast-paced life. I've never really just gone for a walk, especially near where I live. You know, sometimes you might go out to the country and you go for yeah. nice walks, but I've never really just gone for a walk where I lived. And I walked around Crystal Palace Park and like, bear in mind, I, I grew up in that park, <clears throat> lived there all my life. I was walking around that park. I was like, this park is fucking sick. Yeah. Like, Still got the dinosaurs <clears throat> in there. Yeah, there's yeah. the dinosaurs. There's a maze. There's a remote-controlled car track there's yeah. an olympic sports center there's this there's the steps there's a an amphitheater where bob marley used to there's a uh, perform there's a farm you know what i'm saying mm. i was looking around i was looking like <clears throat> learning about trees and it's even like i know like my my, my grandma was quite a green-fingered person like she used to love her garden and then since i moved to keston and now i've got like all these and just by chance the um person that uh, owns the property who I live on there. <clears throat> He's a landscaper. And so like, just by, I, he started teaching me like now I can walk around and I can name trees and I understand about trees and plants. And like, it's really just opened my mind up to a whole different side of life and giving me a new perspective and perception on that side of life, which now I feel like as things are starting to pick up again, has given me a new <clears throat> type of balance. And I've kind of very more, I'm a lot more mindful um, and I, like, I've always been, I've always understood the concept of, of mindfulness, but I feel like as I've now spent time, I've been more still. Do you know what I'm saying? I was always kind of fast paced and I, I didn't have much time for stillness. Whereas now as I feel there's a nice kind of balance. And so now I feel like it's taught me how to speed up and slow down quite naturally. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm quite into meditation now. I like to just, I'll try and digital detox on Sundays. So on Sunday, like I can't get away from my phone and my laptop completely because like, I, I suppose like I say I can't, I suppose I could, but it's just like, I'll check it in the morning and I'll check it in the evening. But I like to try and just get away from my phone during the days. And I feel like, yeah, it's just given me this new kind of, it's opened my mind up to a different side of life that I feel like now moving forward as things start to speed up again, will really have a positive impact on me moving forward. And I just feel like it's kind of just raised my perspective just from here, just to up there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like we kind of, when we live this kind of life in business, and I always say we, as a society, we kind of live with our heads down a bit. And I'm and I'm quite literally, like, because of all everyone spending fucking hours and hours a day looking at their phones. And like when you're walking around now, people are generally looking at their phones or looking down. And whereas I feel like lockdown taught me to just look up a little bit. Do you know what I mean? So now when I walk up, I'll kind of just look up and I'm like, I've spent a lot more time looking up and looking at trees and 
looking at the sky and little yeah. things like that. I feel like I learned a lot about myself during lockdown. Definitely. Do you know what it's also <clears throat> made me realise as well is, you know, like there's a few things like even during lockdown, um, the, 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 the things I call basic, you know, being outdoors, you know, having my own garden, having my own space. I mean, if I had moved into further into London, imagine, imagine I just took that step. I, I would actually be furious, like thinking, why did I move out of a house which had a garden and it was in the mm. countryside, basically. Now I'm in centre of London and it's really reinforced the good decision to stay there and stay in that community. But also like being just with my family, you know, like with my young son, my wife and Get still still training, still working, and then on the weekend just being with them rather than, oh, there's a show coming up, so I've got to do an art show, or this, there's a diff thing to do, or that thing to do. Well, there was none of that. It was just go home, you know, make some good food, maybe even get a takeaway occasionally, and just sit there, watch a film, and just do the basic things. But the other thing is it demonstrates that how quickly life can change. You know, your normal life certainly becomes can be taken away quite quickly. And if you think about it, that can happen anyway with health, new regulations, new laws being passed. And I think, and I know it's very, very hard for people to swallow and digest this, but don't take things for granted, you know. It's, you know, look at an extreme example. What happens if suddenly oxygen was taken from us? What would you do then? Like, how would you pivot, you know? And it would literally be the strong would survive and find a way and the weak would perish, you know, and it's a really extreme example. And I, God forbid that never happens. But if you really think about it, it was a little bit like that. It was your freedom taken away, just good taken away. And I think it, it, it really supports the fact that you need to live in the here and now. And I am the worst person for that. You know, after this conversation, I'm going to be back on the phone, speaking to collectors. I'm going to be doing this, doing that. I'm going to be on my phone. When I get home at night, I should be relaxing, but I won't be. I'll be on the phone. And I think it's that that paradox, again, of trying to become a self-made millionaire, successful person, billionaire, juggernaut in your industry mm. versus trying to have a balance. Uh, you know, so I thought I'd just voice a couple of those things because two years ago, life was going in a direction that we thought it was all going in. And then suddenly something, something happened and, um, you know, things were spun on its head. And even though this end July the 19th, things are going to go back to what we call normal. Um, they've already teed it up a little bit that deaths are going to go up and, you know, restrictions may come back in at certain points and a lot of governments around the world. So, you know, without trying to sound like a conspiracy kind of topic now, it supports the fact that anything can happen in life and you need to be prepared for it. Absolutely. I think going even leaning away from just the pandemic, subjectively like objectively it's change is inevitable <clears throat> and I always say it like I've gone like my life has taken so many twists and turns and it's such a roller coaster it's like the only thing you can be sure of I always say it it's like you can plan and plan and plan as much as you want and I'm heavy on goals and execution and a lot of the goals <coughs> I set will I'll hit and some I won't and I'll make plans but I feel like no matter where you think you're gonna be in 12 months probably it's probably gonna be different it's probably going to be absolutely different do you know what I mean something's going to change and so I feel like embracing change is something that everyone's had to do mm. over the last 12 months and just embracing the concept that there's not I always like to say that there's change is neither good nor bad it's just change yeah and it's what you make of it 
and how you respond to change that will ultimately determine whether it's good or bad. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the way that you take wins and the way that you take losses. And, you know, it's ultimately, <clears throat> once you win, you've won, then you move on. Do you know what I'm saying? Don't dwell on it too much. And same way with a loss, like, like, like regret. Regret's a wasted emotion, right? Because mm. feeling negative emotions in the present for something that's already happened is pointless. But hindsight is a beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah, because that's how we grow and how we develop and the ability to look back and analyse and learn is a beautiful thing. But yeah, change is change is inevitable. It's how you respond to it that determines what effect it has on your life. De- definitely. Um, this is a bit of a segue into like <coughs> what you were talking about with the manner when you've done them podcast episodes. So it's a bit on like the pandemic and the restrictions and the lockdown and creating a lot of mental health issues. But then also feel even in that moment where people couldn't get out and couldn't see their loved ones and they were told to be doing this and that they were on social media a bit more and then it made them feel a bit more resentful because they were looking at other people that were portraying this life like oh I'm doing this and they're like oh well I'm locked in here and I can't and it started creating that that problem but also something which is a bit more relevant we just had the euro uh, 2020 and obviously we got to the final and then we lost on penalties and you know it was fantastic from by the country and also England but then you have the, the height of now racism and the trolling and the um the the malicious messages that have been sent to to our players so I feel like they overlap I feel like the mental health the anxiety the fear the anger the racism and all this kind of stuff is is all coming ahead right now I just wanted your take on it because you sound like someone that is quite articulate, very aware about these situations and I wanted to see what your view was. Um, yeah, I feel like we're at a really interesting point in history on a global level. Like so- socially, <clears throat> there's unrest all over the world um, for various different reasons as well. Like it was strange. I, I find it, like I said, I'm a bit of what you would call a, a conspiracy theorist. Do you know what I mean? All I, I like to say that I like to ask questions and I don't take what I see on face value, right? Like, and it's the thing that I'm not saying I know. But then someone else could call that <coughs> entrepreneurial. Because I, I, I've said it off, off air a little while ago. When someone says to me, they, they might raise, oh, you're challenging what, what's been said. Well, well, yeah, I've always been taught to challenge something. If it doesn't make sense to me, challenge it. I mean, you, I, I noticed you said you were plant-based. I'm not fully plant-based. So I'm pescatarian. I fish probably twice a week. But I'm predominantly like, uh, you know, veg and fruit and stuff like that. I feel it's just healthier. And when I started looking into it, there was two elements. It was one, animals are being, they are being tortured, like it or not, they're being tortured. And even if it's one out of a hundred that I used to eat, I'd rather save that one because I don't think it's right. I think morally it's not right. And the second thing is actually, if you're consuming all this protein all the time, that turns into cancers. So it's probably better for me anyway, from a moral and also a health point of view. But all you're being marketed all the time is protein. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Build build bigger muscles because of the protein and stuff. And I've realized over time that's just marketing. And it's a bit like what's happening now <coughs> with certain things. It's like marketing. So you have to be entrepreneurial to... Yeah, and no, I digress there a little bit, but I'm quite passionate about that subject yeah. as well. No, absolutely, and I just think that um, I, I'm I'm wary of of everything that the media tells us. Yeah, I, I, you, some people will look at me and think I'm a raging tinfoil hat wearer, 
And I'm absolutely fine <coughs> with that because, you know, one thing we can be sure of is that the media lies. Yeah, without trying to go too far into like fucking talking like I'm David Icke or whatever. We don't need to go in that direction. But we talk about opening school, about propaganda. I mean, the World War Two, World War One, Vietnam War, we've seen it in our own lifetimes. Every major event that we've seen from 9-11 to we- weapons of mass destruction with Saddam to Brexit, <clears throat> it's been proven afterwards that the media has lied to us in some degree. So right now, I don't know what is actually going on, but I would hazard an educated guess that the papers are lying, first and foremost, right? <clears throat> And so socially, economically, it just seems strange to me what's going on in the world. Like even I remember when we were having the kind of BLM and defund defund the police uh, protests over here, there was uh, a similar thing going on in Nigeria for a completely different reason for NSARS. And I just found that strange. Like, wow, well, there's a big, there's two, there's like civil unrest and defund the police protests going on because of major events in completely different places in the world. Like right now, today, I've seen this morning, there's like mass riots in South Africa and they're, they're looting and burning down the whole country. And I just feel like we're in a very strange, quite pivotal point <clears throat> in history. And I feel like it's interesting, like we say about a lot of people's response to lockdown. And earlier we touched on spirituality and I feel like a lot of people who are uh, <clears throat> woke is such a again such a such an overused word, but conscious people now are starting to just sense that there's something not quite right with what's going on. Like like you say with the plant based thing, you know, I feel like I was a massive meat eater. I was mixed grill with no sides. <clears throat> Do you know what I'm saying? But then my ex girlfriend turned vegan. At first, I kicked right off. I was like, no, because I love fine dining. I like, we have flown all over the world to go to the best restaurants. I was like, no, we're not going to be able to go to no nice restaurants no more. It's going to cause problems in our relationship. But, you know, I like to, I like to debate and I'm a researcher and I feel like, you know, without, again, I'm pro-choice. I don't, I'm not a judgy vegan. Everyone makes their own decisions. Uh, I always say, let he without sin cast the first stone. Yeah. So like, I'm plant-based, but I've still got an iPhone that's got lithium in it from child minds. So I don't believe anyone, everyone's too busy pointing their fingers at other people and putting themselves on the pedestal rather than looking in the fucking mirror. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I feel like with, but with the vegan angle, although I don't judge, in my opinion, as an intelligent, compassionate person, if you take the time to research it, whether it's the environmental argument, whether it's the moral argument, or whether it's the health argument, they are compelling in their own way. And that's why I feel like a lot of people now, one way or the other, are finding, a lot of conscious people are finding their way, are leaning towards a plant-based lifestyle. They're leaning towards mindfulness and meditation. They're finding themselves drawn to greenery and open areas. They're finding themselves coming into contact with like-minded people. And there's definitely, it, it definitely, without being too left, with it, it definitely feels like there are strong forces pulling in two very different directions at the minute. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. I feel like with the whole uh, <clears throat> pandemic, and then if you funnel it down 
to what I said earlier, which was about the, the vaccinations. And I'm I'm putting it out there. I've said it a few times. I think you should have a choice. You should either have it or don't have it, depending on what, depending on if you feel like you need it or not. Right now, it's almost like here's the marketing pitch, and we're going to keep on pitching you until you fucking do it, and we're going to make you feel bad if you don't do it, and we're going to restrict your life if you don't do it, which I think is bang out out of all that's wrong. And what it's done is divided people. And my dad's had it. And my dad is very on, you, know, you should have it. My mum, you said the word, uh, the name earlier, David Like, My mum is like the female David Like. I'm telling you, she she researches so much. But I said I said to my dad, even to my mum, the irony is my dad only listens to mainstream media. He'll buy a Daily Mail and read it. I'll call my dad a normal geezer. Like, you know, he's a bit of a wheeling dealer. Like he's done all right for himself, but he's very much... Yeah, pint, you know, you know, geezer, you know, have a fry up. Yeah, have a fry up. You've got to have a fry up because that's what gives you the energy. Like completely like he's never done any research in his life. Then my mum, on the other hand, she'll listen to something. She'll go, right, I'm going to research that. And she'll listen to like talk radio, for example, which, which they have open debates with scientists. She'll go on to the higher wire. She'll listen to David Icke. She'll listen to that person. And she'll come back with X, Y, Z. Well, no, that's not true because it's not in the mainstream media. And that in in its own small little ecosystem is exactly what's happening all across the country. Is divide. You know, you should have it because this is what. No, I don't want to have it because of this. Oh, you're a conspiracy person. You're an anti-vaxxer. It's not that. I'm pro my immune system. I'm 35 years of age. I was competing in a boxing match two years ago against a geezer who was 24, 25 years of age and I was out the ring for six years and and I came back and I won that fight and I'd done it all on a soup diet. I said to myself, I had to to lose loads of weight to get down to 73, 74 kilo. I walk around 79, 80, 81 sometimes. And the reason why I mention this is because I know my body. I know how I can how I can how I can manipulate in a good way to for it to become fitter, stronger, more immune to certain things. And I feel that once you're more on the angle of prevention rather than cure, unless you're really overweight, unless you've had a heart scare, unless you feel really, really old and you feel like you need it, crack on. But do not manipulate me to try and force me to do something that I probably don't need to do. And that's just my view. And then, and then, like I said, I say that to someone who's not a critical thinker, they'll be right on a defence. It's like, no, you've got to do that, and you're, you're going against the grain and everything else. Well, all my life I've been going against the grain. You know, I wasn't, I didn't get any good, uh, I, I didn't get any good education, really. I was in school, never bunked off school, but I, I didn't really qualify very well. Um, I didn't go to university and I had my head of the year saying to me, you will never, ever get a good job. You'll never amount to nothing. Well, fucking, I've done all right so far. So just because you haven't done something textbook doesn't mean it's it's wrong or out of the ordinary. And again, I'm going off in a bit of a ramp because like you, I feel like things are coming to a head now. And I feel like there could be a bit of a, a war eventually. I feel like there there could be a national and international war because this is like a new religion religion now. I have you been vaccinated? Do you believe in the pandemic and all that kind of stuff? And if you're either on this side or that side, whereas before you could be in the middle and that'd be cool. And now it's not. See, it's, yeah, it's like you say, it's an interesting one because again, same way with like my parents are probably similar age to your parents. The difficulty for them 
And again, which is why I'll be, be telling my mates because like my mates are really like heavily, like they're quite aggressive with their with their conspiracies. Do you know what I mean, what we'd call conspiracy, what we call the alternative explanation to what's going on. And although I do, I don't believe a word the mainstream media says. I'm still wary of the alternative explanation <clears throat> because I believe that you can't take either on face value. So I'll try and find a critical explanation in the middle. Well, I was just just to jump in there. I was told, you know, when they were coming out to clap the NHS, yeah. Mm. I mean, I always found that a little bit, sort of in a way, slightly ridiculous because I was thinking, one, I don't believe the numbers which are going into the NHS. I lived by a hospital, and I remember going in there around that sort of time, and it wasn't overwhelmed and people dying and everything else. It was just like any normal time. Anyway, sort of. So I used to go for a run, and they all be standing outside clapping. And then someone told me, which is a theory. And again, I'm not ruling it out. I just don't think it's that right with me. They were saying, "Oh, they're clapping because that's when they was turning on the 4G to test it." And so it was drowning out the humming sound that the 4G was creating. Now that could be right. I don't know. I'm not ruling anything out. I believe in life; anything's possible. But personally, they didn't sit right with me. Um, but again, I'm not going to ridicule that person. And say you're fucking, you know, you're 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 you're, you're stupid. I mean, I know I'm digressing here, but even like I've seen Joe Rogan's post recently, and if you, I even watched something from CNN, and it was clearly a military plane or a submarine or something was following basically a UFO, mm. and it was watching it, and it disappeared off the thing, and it's been it's been spotted so many times now. And they're saying this thing moves like nothing else on this planet. And there's a video of it. And I say it to my dad. He's like, you're nuts. You're nuts. I said, but dad, you believe in the mainstream media. This is on the mainstream media. So you can't pick and choose what you believe in. It's like, (laughs) you know. The thing is with, I feel like with our parents' generation, right, is they haven't been, especially the pre-internet generation, is they haven't been, they've been conditioned, specifically conditioned not to think critically. So if you even if you goes back to you look at education system in this country, right? You don't get any sort of marks for your own opinion until you do a PhD. Everything through school, all of your A GCSEs, A levels degree, it's case studies. What's your source? What's your source? You don't you can't say I think this. You have to say I think this because Steve said it in this book. Or I think this because Scott said it in that book. But that might be wrong because John said it in that book. And until you do a PhD you don't, you're not encouraged to think critically. Mm. And so then what we have is you don't, you're not encouraged to think critically. You're encouraged to just learn, do as you're told. And you Recite. Through, exactly. Regurgitate, learn and regurgitate and become a puppet. And then so then what happens and you're then fed by the media. And it's not really until the internet came about and there's been access to knowledge for an alternative narrative to the media. So now our generation and beyond, we're kind of taught, <clears throat> we're taught to question things. And that's why sometimes I'll sow seeds and I'll try and I'll say little things to my mum and dad. And they learn now there's enough kind of, I'm able to disprove the media enough for them to start to ask questions. Do you know what I mean? But I think <clears throat> the problem is at the minute is <clears throat> if you believe, in what I do, I'll say it openly, whatever you want to call it, New World Order, whatever it is, there is a agenda, in my opinion, by a very small minority on the planet who control the vast majority of the wealth to to control to create mass control over global citizens, right? And I believed. And if you look at a lot of this information is open. If you look into ID twenty twenty and Agenda twenty thirty and the World Economic <coughs> the World Economic Forum 
um, have openly released a uh, podcast saying talking about um, the work. The year is twenty thirty. I don't know if you've seen it. The year is twenty thirty. I own nothing. I have no privacy. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy. Yeah, weird, I'm happy. Yeah. It was fucking, marketing. <clears throat> weird it. fucking dystopian shit that's going on. But the problem is now. <clears throat> I think a lot of these restrictions. And a lot of the way we're being told to stand up, sit down, look left, look right, put a mask on, don't put a mask on, go outside, don't go outside. I feel like we're be, being divided now into the compliers and the non-compliers. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And now my worry as we're moving towards, because I feel like we're going to get let out and then we're going to get put back in again. <clears throat> and then what's going to happen then is everyone's going to turn on the unvaccinated people and start Definitely. pointing fingers. And it was interesting because I remember... When we started when we started approaching the vaccine, right? I was said I said to my friend, I said, I'm interested how the narrative changes. Because up to this point, we've all been guilt tripped into it. Yeah, it's all been do this to protect the NHS, do that to protect your nan, do this to protect this person. Do you know what I mean? Wear a mask to protect your nan. Stay in your house to protect your nan. Sit down and shut the fuck up to protect your neighbours. It's all been about guilt tripping you because you could be a threat to someone else. So I thought, all right, then <clears throat> when the vaccine comes. <clears throat> How's that narrative going to change? Because then all of a sudden, surely if you've been vaccinated, I'm only a risk to my fellow non-vaccinated friends. So you ain't got to worry about me. But then lo and behold, the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting it and it doesn't stop you from transmitting it. And so if it doesn't work, then what's the point in the fucking vaccine? Yeah. I mean, I was always told... And again, I don't know. If, I don't know because I'm not a biologist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. But my understanding when they were pitching it is it's going to bring down your chances of being going into hospital. Okay, fair enough. Cool. My chances as a 35 fit, uh, relatively young guy who's very active with my sport, with training, my nutrition, and have been a bit more aware than the average person, I would say, about what I put in my body in regards to food on a day-to-day -day basis, even things like distilled water, I only drink, me and my family only drink, drink distilled water. I don't drink tap water. People might call me a conspiracy person or, 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 or a nutter, but if you do a test on your, and I've done it myself, you buy a machine and you can test the how much metal is in your water. It's alarming, literally, how much is in there. So now the distilled water, and start, small little changes like that, is allowed my immune system to be quite, quite, I quite strong. One second on water, I heard something a lot because I haven't, I haven't touched. I have will sit there with the driest mouth in the world, and I still won't touch that water. I ain't touched yeah. it for about three, four years maybe, right? <clears throat> and the other day, I heard something alarming. And it's how much estrogen? Yeah, you heard this. How much yeah, estrogen yeah. is in tap water? Chlorine because of the and the reason the estrogen is in tap water is because. The amount, the average glass of tap water that goes into your body has been through, passed through someone's body six times and been filtered. And the oestrogen from women's bodies through the contraceptive pill is why there's high levels of oestrogen in the water. And it's like, what? why on earth would you drink that? Yeah, there's lead, mercury, everything else in it. And so, yeah, going back to it, like, um, again, if you want to take it, crack on and take it, you know? It's like, it's like again, going back to my mum and dad, my mum's a bit like this as well, like, Let's just say Mason, my son, was crying. He had a toothache or an earache. The natural thing straight away is paracetamol because that's all it is. And I'm thinking, but if, if he like had coconut water for it, a raw coconut water, ginger, you know, st stuff is natural, which take away information. That's the right thing. You don't want to cover it up by doing pharmaceutical drugs every single time. <laughs> Again, I might sound like a tree agaria and I might sound like some sort of hippie, but... 
I think when you strip everything back, a lot of the time it is about a marketing pitch to make money. 100%. And it's, but look at, look at how many times we've both paraphrased ourselves to like, I said, oh, I might sound like a hippie. I might sound like that. And even now we're kind of like explaining ourselves or feeling like we have to explain ourselves for having an alternative opinion and like where, and where the abstract ones. Whereas actually, if you actually take yourself away from society and look at it objectively, like you just paraphrase yourself to try and give an explanation for using natural remedies which occur from the earth <clears throat> because the, percep- the, no- the perception or the, the social norm is to use uh, a manufactured substance to treat symptoms, which notoriously doesn't solve the root cause of any illness, paracetamol, which is purely just for treating symptoms. And I feel like the whole pharmaceutical industry has been designed to treat symptoms rather than to get to the root cause of anything. Because when you go to the doctors, when I used to, when I did go to the doctors, I don't go to the doctors no more. When I did go to the doctors and I was ill and I had a cold, I can't remember ever being asked, what's your diet like? What's your lifestyle like? How, what's your stress levels like? What's, what, do you know what I mean? How much do you exercise? It was like, it's like antibiotics. <clears throat> do you know what I mean? And then this whole industry has then been created. And I remember reading a Goldman Sachs paper that was published about pharmaceutical industry to say the patient cures a customer lost. And now these are the same people that are developing these vaccines that we're now mm-hmm. being psychologically fucking manipulated and coerced into injecting ourselves with. And then I'm a, apparently a conspiracist because I don't trust it. Mm. It doesn't make sense. I feel, I feel like it's blindly obvious to a lot of people, but again, it just shows you the power of a sale <laughs> at the end of the day. They're, they're selling people and it's and it's and it's on emotion, not on, on logic. Because logically, if we all thought to ourselves, how many people do we know have actually died from it or really got it badly? Not not really many. Like probably I don't know really anybody. I mean, I've had my missus's uh, mate say, Yeah, nanny, this died at, yeah, but how old was she? 84 years of age. I mean, really, can you pull it down to that? I mean, you know. Anyway, um, so yeah, I think a lot of logic's gone out the window and they are guilt-tripping us into into a corner, but only time will tell. Um, look, going back to like you as an individual and also like the, the career of, of, of the manor, where do you see yourself over over the next few years with, with, with the group? Have you got any good plans coming up soon or anything yeah, you're, you're doing? We've got, um, we were going to try and squeeze it out this year, but um, in, in the gap that we're hopefully going to be allowed to, to live a free life over the next few weeks, but uh, we're going to be moving it till next year. Um, we're throwing our own festival. I'm going to call it Manifest. Nice. And um, yeah, we're going nice. to, and again, we're going to um, just take <coughs> it into our own hands. You know, and we've realised over the course of the last year that we don't, we have a, a operational profitable business and we don't need radio. We don't need Spotify. We don't need the music industry per se to give us anything because we've got a loyal engaged buying fan base and so we're going to do everything ourselves so we thought all right <clears throat> cool festival bookings come and go we got booked for a load last year we've been rebooked for some this year but who knows if you're going to be the people at the moment who knows if you're going to get booked next year whereas if we can build our own brand as a festival we can throw that every year and then if everyone has a good time they're going to come back next year so we're going to throw our own festival manifest headlining ourselves do the bar ourselves. Um, we've got a great site in um, uh, North Greenwich outside the magazine near the right. O2, which is on the river 
our mainstay's gonna arrive on the river. If I've got anything to do with it, we're gonna arrive by boat, which nice. will be fucking sick and have that all filmed on a VT. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we're gonna throw our own festival um, and headline it. We've got a load of music coming. We're gonna be obviously heavily involved in uh, my app, in the Bando app, and hopefully that's gonna be something that's gonna really empower musicians to become their own business, you know? And this is the thing. Uh, we like I've crunched the numbers on this and OnlyFans only fans can say that they convert 2.5 an average of 2.5% of uh, someone's Instagram followers into platform subscribers. I feel that uh, musicians will convert better because I think that there's a real strong connection between a musician and their their, their most loyal fans. You know, I feel like the only clo- the only comparison is maybe football. Um, but even football, the connections with the team rather than the individual, whereas everyone's kind of got their favourite celebrities, but how much do you <clears throat> watch your favourite actor? Probably not every day. Do you know what I mean? Even your favourite footballer, how much do you watch him play football? Not every day. Your favourite musician, you listen to them every day and mm. that vibration provokes an emotion in you. And we've crunched the numbers and if we convert as musicians anywhere from 35 to 5% of our Instagram following into a £5 monthly subscription, we will be earning significantly more money from our art than anywhere else in the music industry. And most importantly, there won't <coughs> be any corporate, other corporations involved. They won't need any outside entities. We won't need brand sponsorships. We're trying to really create a vehicle for all musicians to become their own self-sustainable business. And so something I believe in um, as, a, as, as a marketing tool and from business, but it's something which I think has a real social purpose to it as well. Proper sick, and I've, I've, I've absolutely bought into that vision, mate. And it's it's clear that you're uh, you're onto something. You said earlier about um, doing warm up acts for like the streets. Um, number one, what was that like? I mean, what was that like to be in amongst like with Mike and you know his team, etc. But then also, um, is there any other artists like fairly big artists that are like people like Example? I feel like Example would be like yeah. the synergy between you know, you guys and him and the streets is kind of, it all feels quite similar in, in some aspects. Yeah. First off, yeah. The streets tour was fucking surreal, man. Like even just the way it came about, cause the streets are probably, well, we've all got, again, we all come from different backgrounds and we've all got our different, our own different musical influences, but Mike Skinner and the streets are probably the biggest soul influence on our music. And that's quite clear. And I remember, so the tour was um, <clears throat> January, 2019. And when they toured in 2018, we had tickets to the gig. Uh, and our manager called up the day of the gig and he was like, oh, I've got good news. You guys have been booked as main support for the Streets Tour next year. Wow. Um, 16 shows in 21 days around the country. Jesus. And yeah. And he said, oh, do you want to go? They've asked if you want to go backstage today for the show. And we were like, nah, like, we're going to be backstage all next year. I want to go in the crowd and, and live it as fans. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So... <clears throat> It was just an amazing experience, man. Like just because just to be on tour and like Mike is, he's just an absolute like anomaly of a person. Like he's so creative. He's just a creative genius. Like watching him perform, like his energy, he's just like uh, encapsulating like the room. He just controls the room and he's got every single person in there hanging off his every word. And, you know, I feel like every, I, I, I watched him perform for every gig out in the crowd. Do you know what I mean? And a few of them, like we'd had a drink and we'd had a show and <clears throat> we went and met some birds in the crowd and chat, hang around with them for a bit. But then 
I think quite a few of them, I went and sat upstairs by myself and just studied him and just studied what he did, studied his movement, studied the way he spoke to people, yeah. studied the way he would find people in the crowd and you could see him engaging with people in their eyes. And I wrote, so I've got so many notes in my iPhone from that tour. Like <clears throat> It was an amazing experience. And especially because it started off in Birmingham, which was Mike's hometown, and then finished at Brixton Academy. And we did five Brixton Academies in a row at the end. And like we're obviously a very London-focused act. And I was like, might be a little bit arrogant, but I said by the end, it was like a joint tour. Because by the end, we had like as much of a following in there as they did. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel like at least sort of like 70% of the room would come to see both. <clears throat> so Sick. yeah, that was like, that, that was an amazing experience and something that like, that's, when, when you talk about the whole journey and what, what you do it for, like, don't get me wrong, I'm, financially motivated and I want to have big hits and drive big cars and make millions but in terms of like experiences as a human being like to be on tour with someone who you used to listen to their music in school and idolise there's mm-hmm. like you can't really draw many comparisons to that yeah you know what I'm saying <clears throat> it's like and then so um <clears throat> that was amazing um and then to go on to, um, so what was the last thing you said after the streets talk? So like other people, like I said, other example writers, yeah. and stuff. Um, yeah, example. We've got a sick tune of example, uh, but we were never allowed to release it because of the record label. And it's one of the, um, <clears throat> listen, like I'm not super anti-labels at all. Like those situations work out for a lot of people. And we've worked with some really great people at record labels. Um, but there is... Uh, an element of control that they have over your music and so there's like it was difficult for us because we kind of always built from the ground up Mm. but to make music and be excited about something and then told that you can't release it was very difficult especially for someone like myself like I haven't worked for someone else for over a decade and I've built my own businesses and I make my own decisions you know what I'm saying so to have someone else tell me I can't do something that I want to do. It was strange for me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so, um, yeah, example, hopefully now. Do you reckon, do you reckon it will come out? Yeah. So he's actually now, we, we were never allowed to release it after label. Like being, being straight now, I'll say it completely openly. The label said that he didn't have enough buzz around him at the minute. And they thought that anyone who they wanted us to do a collab with, it had to be someone who's kind of, they're very much about this, about clout. In a minute, and <clears throat> lo and behold, the example now has made a massive comeback and he's absolutely flying. And he always had it in him because he's a nice fella, he's super creative, and he's a sick artist. And he's actually um, now remixed that song into something that's a little bit more fitting in with the times now. And he's going to put it out on his new album. Lovely. <clears throat> so, yeah, like, but even then, like, just to think in terms it was always a little bit difficult. Collabs are quite difficult for us because there's three of us. Do you know what I mean? So even trying to accommodate all three of us on every track can be difficult. But just to, again, going back to live, like to think, because like we do big shows and even some of the acts that we've had supporting us at our shows, like P Money, like it's like one of my favourite grime MCs. Yeah. Like I just used to into in school. P Money supported us at one of our shows, which is crazy. Like Prez T, that's what we always used to do for our shows. We'd always try and book one act, which is like kind of, got a lot of buzz around them at the minute and one act who's just someone who we like mm. who we think is sick do you know what I mean so it's like yeah it's, 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 it's P Money and, and uh, Gets back <clears throat> in the day were wicked yeah unreal like uh, two probably the best two lyricists in this country like and I feel yeah. like if people 
appreciated like lyricism over here like they do in America. I've always said if they were born in the States, they'd both be like super multi-millionaires. Not that maybe they are, but yeah. do you know what I'm saying? I feel like they would be like a whole different level of perception. And he's only now gets, <clears throat> with his recent album, there was an absolute <clears throat> masterpiece that went to number two. Now he's finally getting recognition. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, <clears throat> it's, it's sick the amount of people that I've come into contact with and... Um, again, like I say, like this this whole journey started because I love music, and so just being in and around people and being able to come into contact with people and having people on our shows and even like even just the fact that now we can kind of get guest list to other people's shows and even going to li- little little perks, man. Like it's not like going to festivals as an artist is so much of a different experience to going to imagine. festival as a punter. And I love festivals, but to go there, you don't have to queue up outside. You're not getting, for whatever reason, you're not getting frisked at the door. You've got a little dressing room that you can go and have a drink. When you want to go from stage to stage, you can go around the back. You can go and have a little breather. Yeah. Like, it's a completely different experience, man. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful journey that I'm very grateful for. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I know you kind of covered it, but like, like, you're a very, very driven individual, articulate, you know what you want out of life. Where do you actually see yourself 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? Have you got a bit of a roadmap or are you just going to take it as it comes? Um, I try not, like I said, because I'm such a believer in change, I, t- I try not to plan too specifically, but um, I would like, so I'm 32 now, and I, I would like to be in a position... I want to create a situation in my 30s where I no longer have to work. And I still will because I'm motivated and focused, but I want to create, put myself in a position of financial freedom within the next decade of my life that I don't have to work. Um, So I'd like to, yeah, the app I think is something that is, uh, like I say, is being built um, from the ground up. It's been built for sale. Do you know what I'm saying? We've got someone sitting on the board as executive chair who is very experienced in taking software companies to exit. Nice. Um, and so we're built, we're built, we're being built to potentially try and exit quite quickly. Um hopefully one of the uh <coughs> one of the big boys, by the time they realise what they're doing, they'll just pay off to fuck off. So so you got three of you involved with that? As in as in from the manor, all three of you? Or just no, you? It's, no, it's just, just me. You. It's, cool. just, it's just me. I'm, I'm kind of like the music side of it. And then okay. the, uh, John Forbes and his brother are the tech side of it. And then we've got a couple of, a couple of other people I know nice. um, who have been brought on to help with uh, the network and the workload. One of my friends, uh, a guy, one someone John knows called Ty. And uh, one of my friends, a guy called Matt, who's um, who trades at JP Morgan. He brings a good network and, um, and good financial knowledge. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, whether... Whether it's an app or it's, it's music or whatever it is, I'd like to put myself in a position that I don't need to work anymore. Um, and then my plan is that I want to invest in young entrepreneurs. I don't want to, I don't really believe in, <clears throat> I, w- I want to do charity work, but I don't really believe in, I'm not someone who thinks that, oh, I want to pay for all my mates to stop working and pay for my family to never have to work again. <clears throat> I don't do that. I want to empower them to achieve their own financial freedom. So I want to invest in, do what like the, what the Forbes family group does, invest in young entrepreneurs, invest in my mates, <clears throat> invest in family members. And so anyone who's got an idea, come to me and hopefully I'll have a bit of financial backing and I'll have the business now so that we can then go and make it happen. And so, yeah, I want to invest in <coughs> young entrepreneurs, invest in, help my friends and family achieve financial freedom. Um, and I'd like to, do, I would like to do some charity work with 
on three facets with animals, uh, young children and homeless people. Yeah, amazing, mate. Um, look, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. It's been quite diverse and everything else. Where can people find you just to follow your journey, mate? Uh, yeah, Twitter and Instagram at Scotty Stacks, spelled how you'd expect it to be spelled, um, and Twitter and Instagram at underscore the manner. Nice one. Um, I really want to take up the opportunity to interview all three of you at some point, so maybe we'll have that penciled in in the future. That would be that'd be really, really cool. I've got a catchphrase. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, it's not really a catchphrase, like a mantra. I developed it actually when I was got into sales or my only my own sales company for the very, very first time. As you well know, sales is all about mindset and it's all about living and breathing like you are a, like you are a winner and, and developing into that role. So the mantra is be happy, never content. Be happy, never content. I've got my own version of that. What does it mean to you if you were to say be happy, never content? What does it mean to Scottish Stacks? Um, it, it kind of fits into my catchphrase, which is a little bit more broad, which I've got on my hand, which is, and so it is. And it's just, I feel like it's the concept of just surrender. Do you know what I mean? Surrender, surrender to where life takes you, um, accept things for what they are, but at the same time, make sure you know where you're going, what you're doing. Don't forget who you are. I mean, don't get, I posted, I posted it on my Instagram yesterday um, because I wanted to try and cheer people up after the England result. And it was, uh, don't, don't let a win go to your head. and Don't let a loss get to your heart. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like that fits along with that. Be happy, never content. Yeah. Wicked. All right. Nice one. Um, Everybody, please go and follow uh, Scott, Scotty and um, look out for the manners next uh, few projects coming up. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and please share it to your friends and family. And thank you for all the support and lots more guests and uh, great episodes coming up. Be happy, never content. Nice one, mate.